everybody, welcome back. Today I have a really special guest. He's all the way from Down Under, Jeremy Walker. He is the owner of Inspire Hypnotherapy in Brisbane, Australia. His background is in hypnotherapy, psychosomatic therapy, and the Demartini method. We're going to discuss all of these. He's been practicing as a hypnotherapist since 2010, and he has worked with, well, thousands of clients in one-on-one sessions. He specializes in helping people with um, addictions, depression, anxiety, etc. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Going really well. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's great to have you. Now, what would you say is your most common patient or treatment that you address? Yeah, the most common patient I would have would be someone who's a cigarette smoker, um, usually middle-aged, so somewhere between 40 to 60 um, would, would be the typical person I would see, and about 50-50 between um, males and females. Now, what kind of success rate is that? And I ask this because I know that hypnotherapy has been shown to be most effective, I believe, in weight loss, but not quite as effective in, in, um, in smoking as weight loss because there's other factors like nicotine and actual physical chemical addictions. Ah, interesting. I actually find the opposite experience uh, at my practice. Really? So my quit smoking program has a, a 97% success rate and I actually work with people for the one cost and we just work together until we get the result. Um, interestingly, nicotine probably pays a, um, a big impact with 5 to 10% of people, but it's more the associations they have. And I'd love to share quite a bit about this with you on today's interview is that it might be their associations with stress or their partner smokes or mm. what they do when they're bored how they deal with emotions that can can really impact that and similar with weight loss as well there can be a lot of associations that can either make it easier for some or or difficult for other people okay that's interesting and is the the weight loss issue then the fact that like you can go to non-smoking areas and you can try to avoid it by staying in the house and things like that but you have to eat exactly like you can quit smoking but you don't quit food you don't quit drinking so there's, it's always going to be around. And then what happens at Christmas time? What happens if you have a bad day? That can tend to lead to people perhaps going back to habits that weren't working. It's very interesting. Okay. But you did do a, a clinical study on, on uh, dieting, correct? Or, or weight loss? Yeah, that's right. I thought, well, I'm going to be doing this weight loss hypnotherapy thing. And most people are probably going to say, well, isn't it just about eating better and exercising? And the answer is partly going to be yes. But as I'm working with the mind, I thought, well, I need to have some evidence to show that this weight loss for hypnotherapy or by hypnotherapy actually works. Um, And it's usually what someone um, says they're going to do, and then they might have trouble doing that. It's kind of that gap between what we want and and getting the result. And that's what I help people with um, with overcoming. So is your um, go-to to to help them with motivation? Uh, Motivation can be one. They might say, well, I used to be really fit. I used to have an active job. And now I just think about running or think about using the treadmill and just can't even get up. Just the, the motivation can, can be really low for some people. I've listened and kind of studied up in, in your background a little bit. Now, what exactly brought you into this particular field? 
Um, so I think I was always going to end up in helping people with mind-body um, type work. Uh, what really got me into it was um, I think the first self-help book I ever read was um, Tony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Within. And in reading that book, I realized, well, the goal of life is to be happy, it's to be fulfilled and to be satisfied, so I better go and study this thing. And then in going ahead and studying that, you find out, well, I found out for me where I'm missing things that I really want in life and ended up you know, having some health challenges and emotional challenges myself and figured out, well, my doctor's not helping me. I better learn how to do this myself. And that's what I you know, te- teach to other people now. And how old were you at this time? Um, so I first started studying this work, like self-study, um, at around 20, 21 years old. Um, and then actually had, then had my health challenges around 23, so I was already kind of learning about this stuff and then started formally studying more in, in 2000. Okay, so that's a, a pretty big gap. Um, what, what were your health challenges, if you don't mind? Um, yeah, so I ended up getting um, chronic fatigue, um, had, had daily anxiety, um, digestion problems, um, sore joints and muscles. Um, so it was like waking up every day and feeling like a truck had run me over. Hmm. Um, so there's just this feeling of lethargy, soreness, and it, it just didn't go away. And then months and months on end, a few years on end, and thought, well, this, this, can't, this isn't working, so something's not right here. So what was the cause? Did you, did you get to that? Um, never ended up getting to the cause. It was usually something related to viral, bacterial, or in other cases, autoimmune diseases. Um, the approach I just took was be as healthy as I possibly could and it'll support the body to come back. Um, and it did end up coming back after a, a four-year period, yeah. Oh, so it went away and then it came back again? Oh, I mean, like it, it went away after four years and, and never came back. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I get confused. Um, okay, now were you studying uh, hypnotherapy and were you actually not just studying it but also a patient yourself um so i never you know, went to see like a hypnotherapist for um, a problem that i had but i would use those sort of techniques um i guess engaging my own subconscious mind in problem solving that, that's really the, the approach i took there is my mind and body responds to what i direct it to do so then i learned how to do that really effectively um to, to get the best best results out of myself yeah so a variant of self-hypnosis after a fashion? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But one of the ways I would tend to do that is think about my own subconscious mind like a five-year-old kid. And when you give a five-year-old kid a task to do, they, they get really excited and really enthusiastic about it. And our mind's the same. When we give it like a gap or something that it needs to fill, it gets really excited and starts working on that. So we can engage our mind in a few different ways to actually to, to get us some better results. Cool. I've heard the um, statement that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Would that be entirely inaccurate? Um, I think that would be mostly true. I think that's also said just to give patients um, some uh, feelings of confidence and safety going into a session. Okay, they're not the hypnotherapist hypnos- hypnos- isn't going to do something to me. It's all just going to be about me. So I think a feeling of safety as well. But I'd say certainly sometimes I'm very much directing a person um, and other times it is more of a, a do-with process. It, can, it can, can be a bit of both. So how do you deal with that? Because, I mean, I watch television. I watch movies. 
hypnosis is not always represented as a warm, gentle thing. It is seen as a the form of prime manipulation or or conning people into doing something. Um, how, how do you address concerns or fears? Yeah, um, I guess the fear of someone not thinking I'm ethical um, hasn't ever come up in a session with you know, over, over a thousand people. Um, I think finally the other fears is more like a loss of control. Like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. um, they might feel like they are going to fall asleep. Um, it might be a lady who you know, maybe is quite sensitive around men and, and there can be different concerns like that. Um, so really just, just being a person with, with the, um, the, the people I'm dealing with and say, hey, I understand you might have this fear. Let's see if we can address those concerns as best we can and we'll, we'll work towards the result. Um, yeah, so basically just be as open about exactly what it is. So don't, don't keep anything in the dark and just share about um, yeah, what it's, how, how it's going to work. Um, what it's going to feel like, and then, and then the expected results at the end. Now, did you also study um, psychotherapy or anything else? Or psychology? Um, so psychosomatic or... therapy. Um, and part of the principles around that can be, uh, if you've got a couple of minutes, I can um, give you on this Absolutely. answer. That the body and mind is giving us feedback. So the way I would approach like a negative thought, a negative emotion, um, pains in the bodies and even addictions is seeing it as some kind of message. Um, I had a great one, I think it was about two years ago with my finances. I was feeling really negative about my finances, really stressed out. Um, and then I realized for two months I hadn't even been working on my finances. Um, and then I sat down for an hour, did a process, thought, how can I make up this money I'm missing? Wrote down and brainstormed every solution I could. And within an hour, I'd made up 80% of the money with a new business idea. Um, so and what, what happened then was is the stress left me. So the meaning of the stress and the negative thoughts was to get me to take action on the problem. And it can be like that with other issues in the body. The body and mind are letting us know that something's not working. And then most people try and avoid that or reduce their stress rather than solving the problem. So I've very much got a problem-solving <laughs> approach with both the body, the mind, really with whatever's going on, first of all, can we solve the problem or at least start working on the problem to, towards a solution? And then stress becomes a lot less once we have things complete. Is that a little bit like the Martini method that you um, profess? Um, yeah, essentially. So um, typically I'd use the Martini method when there's strong emotions, say if there's anxiety, anger, and these sort of things. And there's always some content, content that's going on there. So let's say I've got a, a relationship conflict. Uh, either I'm resenting my partner or she's resenting me for something that, you know, something that one of us has done. And then if we can come up with an agreement around that, if we can say, right, my muddy shoes are going to stay at the front door or I'm going to you know, wash up my dishes after I use them, then the anger doesn't need to be there. So that's just a very, I guess, small and simple example. But if the problem's not there, the stress doesn't need to be there. And again, that's the approach I would take with a lot of things. First of all, can we actually just solve the problem? And then we don't need to do as much work on in, in some other areas. Yeah, I thought about that because your finances, you mentioned there was causing stress and then you started to look into it and addressing it directly. That wasn't really a subconscious thing. That was a, a direct question and answer thing, which seems more like the Martini method. And if you could explain it out a little bit further, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. So 
Demartini method is a, a series of questions to help to balance the mind of a misperception. So we'd say a misperception is something where I've got a really strong anger about something that's gone on in my life. It could be hitting partner, uh, I've lost my business, or something really bad's happened. And I'm going to call any negative emotion a misperception. Um, I'm going to say that anything that we have too strong an emotion about is actually letting us know that we aren't seeing the whole picture. Um, so again, I'll use the, an example in my own life. I'd had a, a partner who cheated on me. And if I stay angry about that my whole life, all that does is just impact me in a really negative way. But if I say, did that person do me a favor? Did that person let me know who they really were? Did that in some way help me connect more with what I need sexually? Or with my next partner, hey, we better actually share what we want and need so that neither of us feels the desire to cheat. So we'd go back with the Demartini method and look at where have I done the same or similar thing so that I'm on a par with that person, not resenting them anymore, but saying, okay, well, maybe I've done something similar to that before. And then really going in and finding the benefits of what happened. I don't know, I said a number of different things there in that, that, couple, of, in that couple of minutes statement around that, but anytime we're not in gratitude and we're holding on to resentment, we're not living a great life. We're, it's getting stuck in those feelings. And that's, again, that's part of the work I want to do with people is get out of that stuck feeling to actually feeling free, feeling good, and getting back to that balance. So essentially, I mean, it could be said that the thesis is you can change yourself, but you can't change others. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'd go as far to say as anything I'm really angry about in someone else, it's usually happening. In fact, it's always happening inside me. I'm always the one that has, I guess, got that going on somewhere in my life. Yeah. I'd say ra radical responsibility would be a part of the process. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, I, I wanted to cover that because that's one of the main things that you do from what you've stated before. Um, you also, um, you do psychosomatic therapy and you gave a comparison that was kind of odd that I heard about Hitler's face size on each side and it almost sounded like phrenology. Could you go into that a little bit more? Uh, what was that term you used? Phrenology? Phrenology. Oh, okay. not, it not was, it's kind of a... Um, that term. I hate to say it, it's, it's sort of a racist thing that was used before, saying that uh, the foreheads are too wide because you're more aboriginal and things like oh, that. Right. Yes. It, it compared intelligence and brains with head size and shape. And when I heard face, shape, and size, I got a little nervous because it sounded a little you know, down that line that Radio. could be tied to eugenics. So I was hoping you could. So in psychosomatic therapy, yeah, we do look at the, the shape, the size, the color, and the texture of different parts of the body purely for personality potential. So, for example, if we had like a farmer who's been like a third-generation farmer, very practical, very, very much down-to-earth and very hands-on, they might be more likely to have a square-type face just because that's the type of personality they have is very steady. So we'd look at the shapes and say, what does that shape actually mm -hmm. represent if that was a person? Um, some people have a very narrow chin. And if we were to imagine like putting that on a table, you know, someone's face with like a, a narrow chin on a table, we might imagine that tipping over. So that person is more likely to be a sensitive mm -hmm. person. And there's a few 
other examples like this that can just relate to what's that person most likely to um, have as, as like a personality trait. Certainly not saying anyone's better or worse um, in any regards. You could see where it could be a little dangerous though. Yeah, it would definitely want to be used within context. And I'd even suggest it can help to um, remove racism in a lot of cases. Because if we have a look at and say, well, this person has a, a large forehead or perhaps uh, an open forehead or a round head that might just say, hey, they're an open person. Or it might say they have a higher level of intelligence. We're actually looking at how is this person presenting themselves to the world. And I'd say that like our bodies, is, we're presenting ourselves to the world. And if we can understand people better, I think we're more likely to show them love than if we don't understand them. Well, sure, sure. We want to be open to everyone. So it could so it could certainly be way. Might say, well, you've got a narrow forehead or a big forehead, and someone could see that as an insult. But if I think, wow, no, I, I, for me, when I see someone with a larger forehead now, I think more likely to be an intellectual or have an open mind compared to um, someone else. Yeah, but obviously not always the case. Oh no, certainly not always. No, and there's there's, there's different levels of intelligence. There's different ways people express intelligence you could say a like a football star expresses intelligence but they might do it physically another person might do it through bookwork so yeah wouldn't want to say anyone's not intelligent everyone expresses it in a, a totally different way yeah one might be more mental one might be more physical one might be more spiritual and and so on yeah. well cool and another thing um i believe you deal with nlp yeah, so NLP, um, standing for Neuro Linguistic Programming, and that's in helping to use language on ourselves to get better results. Can you uh, give an example? Yeah, so I'm just thinking about um, an example I've specifically used that for. Yeah, so I'm thinking about um, a person I worked with on quitting smoking, and one of the things we use in NLP is something called submodalities which is the ways we picture things in the mind. So this person who had the, the quit smoking habit, they described cigarettes as, like a, as a picture in their mind as like a moving picture and it was colourful and it was bright and it felt very close. The one thing we can do with NLP is to say, you know, push that picture further away, change the colour to black and white, make it a still instead of a movie, and perhaps make it blurry and foggy. And the next time they think about smoking, their body will actually respond differently um, when they think about having a cigarette as opposed to when they wouldn't. And in some cases, the desire can go away in like a five, 10 minute process. Um, one of my mentors, um, George Fadul, um, he was one of the people I learned NLP from. He used to be known as the phobia master. And he would take people with like bees phobias, cars, um, planes, going to the dentist, and five or ten minutes, they would actually have this phobia gone. The funny thing was he would actually need to do it as an hour session because people wouldn't believe it could be done in five or ten minutes. So he'd spend 50 minutes talking to them and then five minutes doing the process. <laughs> that actually makes sense. So. so it's kind of this funny thing. Yeah. And then, again, there'll be trust building, and it's always good to find out more information about what's going on. Um, but I think there's we need to be moving away as a society of spending months and years working on a problem in ways that don't work anymore um, and doing it in ways where we can actually direct our mind to get to give us better results. Um, that's what I've been working on myself with for 14 years and 
helping clients with for eight years, um, generally in one to three sessions. If I haven't, or in, within a three session process, if I haven't got someone a result, I tell them to find me. Basically, if I'm, I'm not the right person for them. Because um, yeah. I know that someone with, with the right systems in place can make at least some sort of shift. Um, I think I was, about six months ago, I worked with a 75-year-old gentleman who was working on his anxiety that he'd had for 50 years. And mm-hmm. it was up around an 8 or a 9 out of 10 every time he'd go out in a social environment. And we got that down to a 3 to a 4 um, within, within a two-session process. Um, mm. Yeah, so certainly there's ways we can get our mind to start really working for us and instead of against us there. Okay, that, that was actually a question I had, how many sessions um, you typically would have. So essentially three sessions would be the outside number? Yeah, around three sessions um, generally. Um, people who want to do ongoing coaching work, we might do that fortnightly um, over a 12-month period and they might have goals around business and their relationships and health and a number of things all at once. Um, but for like a singular problem, hey, I want, I want to quit smoking, I want to lose weight, or I want to reduce this anxiety that I've had for 20 years, yeah, generally over three sessions we'll, we'll get some, uh, some really good results there. Okay, and by an extended session might be they might quit smoking one week and dieting the next week or next period of time and um, business confidence or something like that, or, or how does that work? Um, so what, what, what do you mean there? Um, an extended period. You had mentioned that if they were doing, oh, right, uh, is it is it multiple things like maybe quitting smoking and dieting and anxiety and something else, or is it just a general kind of handholding for an extended period of time to help them feel better? That's right. Yeah, some people might want to work on on four or five things. So they might say, "Well, I am gambling and I'm drinking and I want to lose ten kilos or fifteen pounds." Um, and it can be an ongoing, ongoing process if there's, if there's a number of things to work on. Now, from your um, experience, have you found that all of these things are generally a symptom of one or two specific things? Ooh, great, great question. Um, I think, yeah, a few things that would play a big role there is if we're going through a big stress in life, we're more likely to slip back into an addiction or to have a hard time making a life transition. I'd say three really big things like getting a divorce, um, having a career change, um, family problems, all these sort of things, or a family member passes away, all of these things just rock us. And then the issue doesn't become, well, the issue then is will a person go and, and drink heavily during that time but to deal with pain? Or will they find healthy ways to deal with pain and stress um, that are actually working for the person? And I'd say that would be a big distinction there is what do we do when we're having a really bad day? Are we looking after ourselves more or less? Okay, so while you're doing this extended period and looking at different things, do you address it in different manners? Like you had mentioned um, figuring out what's at the root or the cause of something would you use a demartini method in one case to deal with something and let's say hypnosis in another and how would you separate those or break those down ah oh, right yeah so typically if i work with people over three sessions we would do hypnotherapy in every session so in the beginning we'd find out a bit about the person a bit about what their goals are a bit about their challenges and then depending on where they're at, I'll do a different process with them. 
um, yeah, the Demartini, Demartini method might be one of those. Um, going in and seeing if we can solve the problem might be another. And there'll be a variety of different um, yeah, coaching tactics we'll, we'll do together. Uh, but yeah, we'll generally we'll have that hypnotherapy in each session because, again, that's, that's really the way to do it where you don't have to use too much willpower and too much battling to do it. Um, I think a lot of what can go on in the coaching world is there's overwhelm. People think, oh, my God, I've got to do all this stuff. Hypnotherapy can kind of take the edge off that. We feel like we maybe want to give up the, the sweet food or, or reduce the anxiety, have the hypnotherapy, and oh, all of a sudden we don't feel like those sweets every night after dinner or the anxiety response is just greatly reduced. Um, so that's what really helps to make like a, a more rapid change is definitely having that hypnotherapy in every session. Then, yeah. And what kind of susceptibility uh, percentages do you find with people? I mean, I don't think ever, it, that people are 100%. Um, I'd say in general, um, 100% of people can be hypnotized. On the day, there might be something going on for that person that could interrupt the process. They might have just had a fight with their partner. They might be extremely stressed. And on that, on that day, we might reschedule it for another time. Um, the only real exclusions I would have for hypnotherapy is if someone um, is on like antipsychotic medication um, or if they do have a mental disorder such as um, bipolar or schizophrenia, I would generally say to the person, um, we can go ahead and do the process, but just to let you know, sometimes those things can actually interfere with having a, a great hypnosis result. Yeah. But you haven't found a um, normal population at all, anyone who's uh, not susceptible or more difficult than others? Uh, no, not so much, no. Um, sometimes you might think, well, if I've got a really strong mind, no, he won't be able to hypnotize me. But essentially it, it is something we do together. Um, and one of the best ways to think about hypnotherapy as well is, is it's really similar to when we're waking up in the morning. You might be aware when we first kind of waking up in the morning, you know, our head was resting on the pillow, and we're not really thinking yet, but we can still hear some noises. We can hear the birds chirping outside or the, the wood creaking in the house from someone walking around. That feeling of being like half awake, half asleep is almost identical to a hypnosis-type feeling. So it is actually something that we go into every single day. Okay. Interesting. Now, do you have situations where I think we were talking about this in the group and everyone who's listening, you need to join the unstructured Facebook group because we can address questions in there, et cetera, with previous guests. But, um, is there a kind of, I guess, confirmation bias or anything like that where somebody may be hypnotized, be it on the stage or otherwise, and say, no, nope, I wasn't. And then you say, well, why is your shirt unbuttoned? And they'll say, because I was hot. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I've definitely had people that have, at the end of the hypnosis, looked over at me and said, well, that didn't work. I didn't feel anything. Um, but what can happen is that person may still get a great result. In one session, that person never smoked again. Um, whereas other people with a deep trance might still take a little bit longer. So I would never want to limit what's possible for someone. Um, and maybe a nice way to think about this might be is some people might come to, say, a hypnotherapist and think, I do want them to do it to me. I think this person's going to help me change. So then they might have a deeper experience and think, wow, it worked. Other people might think, well, I'm going to do this myself and he's going to help. And if they have a lighter experience, that actually fits in with their model of change. 
but then that person might feel like they've empowered themselves as opposed to me or someone overpowering them. So there's, there's a number of different things that yeah, I, would, I would look at with someone, but I want to do it in a way that fits in with their personality and, and what they want to achieve. I wouldn't want someone to think that you know, they could walk away really proud that they did quit smoking, for example, but then they're like, oh, the hypnotherapy did it. You didn't do anything. So that person could then mm. say, no, it's something we did together. No, I empowered myself through hypnosis. Hopefully that answers the, the question there. Sure. So essentially, um, a lot of your people really are coming in self-motivated, and that probably is helpful. Yeah, um, a self-motivated person. Um, I definitely like to work with those people. Anyone who's got goals, um, yeah, as opposed to not knowing what they want, it is always really valuable. Yeah. Now, versus like um, stage hypnosis. Uh, on the stage, people aren't necessarily... Um, motivated to seek help because it's not help it's kind of a game but is it a, a different circumstance there yeah i think it is a different circumstance because there is perhaps 50 to 100 people looking at you when you're up on stage so when the fear and the stress response is higher generally it's harder to get into a relaxed um, state or where the, you know, the brain waves are do, do start to slow down there um, on the other hand, there generally is, let's say if they get 20 people on stage, there'll be 10 that will go into some level of hypnosis there. And you might notice in those stage hypnosis comedy shows, they'll usually ask about 10, 15 people to sit down, either because they, yeah, it wasn't for them or they didn't really have a purpose being up there. Okay. Um, oh, I hope I got the right thing. I think there was something called a Stanford test that determined the level of susceptibility. Is, is that something you're familiar with or is that accurate? Uh, it may be accurate. I'm not, not actually familiar with, with that test. Um, again, okay. really anyone who's ever gone to sleep um, has been in hypnosis before. When the mind slows down, the brain waves start to slow. We can still, we're still aware of what's going on around us, but we're not really analyzing what's going on. Just in that really relaxed state, not really thinking, very similar to hypnosis. So anyone who's ever been to sleep before has actually been in hypnosis. Um, so I'd go more down that route in saying it's certainly possible for everyone. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was mentioning that because I know that they, I guess they determine levels of susceptibility, like uh, between one and 10 or something like that. And I had uh, in during research found that apparently a stage hypnotist will pull up like 20 people and then very quickly do a quick test to find out which people seem to be very receptive and then excuse others. And then, you know, just to quickly, um, knock them out or, or whatever you want to call it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's kind of a calling. Yeah, there is a, a percentage of the population, around 5%, I believe, that's called a somnambulist, and they're very <laughs> susceptible. In um, one comedy show, a hypnosis show I went to, um, the stage hypnotist had put five Band-Aids on her face, and every time she took a Band-Aid off, it would feel like an orgasm. And so you can imagine all the people <laughs> gathering around this girl kind of waiting until she takes these band-aids off and yeah, she looked like she was I, having I, a really good time. This, this seriously happens. Yeah. So the, yeah, a somnambulist mm -hmm. kind of like you could say is the ideal. You probably can say nearly anything under the right circumstances and they're going to have an experience as long as it does fit in with safety. And safety is always the most important thing, whether it be fun, whether it be clinical hypnosis, you still want to keep the person safe and, 
um, you know, most people's own mind will protect them in those circumstances as well. He's not going to recommend that you do something that is dangerous because she'll probably wake up and say, no, leave me. On that note, though, just to be open and fair with everyone, could someone be potentially manipulated by someone who is unethical? You mean like um, advertising? Sure. <laughs> Darren Brown's done some interesting stuff. Yeah, well, the, the, this, the, the, this happens every day, yeah. And, and what, a lot of what Darren, Bra- Darren Brown done is actually brainwashing. So he will actually <laughs> spend weeks and months with the person before that episode to really make sure their responses are programmed. Um, with hypnosis, it's generally not brainwashing to that point. Um, but yeah, the longer you spend with someone, the more they can become susceptible to responses. <laughs> well, that, that um, could be good. Look at marriage. <laughs> marriage, advertising. We have long-term relationships mm-hmm. with these people. They say bye. We say, okay, how much? Um, so influence is happening all the time. It can certainly be used for good, used for bad. That's very interesting. And I did want to go down that route a little bit too. Um, have you followed, do you follow U.S. politics at all? I, I don't know if you care that much being down there. Um, a little. I'm more into like personal growth as opposed to like society and world stuff, but I, I do follow it a little. Yeah. Scott Adams, he's the cartoonist who does the cartoon strip of Dilbert, has spent some time talking about how he's a trained hypnotist and how Donald Trump is actually using influence along the lines of Robert Cialdini and hypnosis by leading and following and things like that. I didn't know. Have you followed any of that? Um, I haven't followed any of the stories about him using um, those techniques. I'm aware of the cartoon um, comic strip Dilbert. Um, that's one of my favorite comics. Okay. But um, I yeah, haven't followed too much around exactly what strategies Trump has used. No doubt he has used a lot of really cool body language stuff and a lot of cool language stuff. And even not like even being a polarizing character that can actually get people to be drawn to us as opposed to being a middle of the road sort of person. How does that work? Um, it's like that. What we resist persists. A bit like when our kids know that something annoys us, they keep doing it and we keep loving them. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something in that thing that if we're resisting something, maybe we're, yeah, like we're kind of drawn to it in a way as well. Like we watch action movies, we watch horror films, a bit like the election. It's like a bit of a horror, horror film. <laughs> and like we're, we're somehow drawn to things that don't make us feel good. And I wonder if that's part of what he's aware of as well is, is this, this thing. That's interesting. And uh, Scott Adams has stated that's why he deliberately misspell words in his tweets. Ah, uh, yes. He's drawing attention to himself, not by being perfect, but by being polarizing. I'd say that would be a, a form of, of influence as well. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that there is something there then. On the, um, what is it? Social media platform, Reddit, there's posts and articles that are upvoted. So the ones that are considered very good. And then there's a controversial section, which is just as popular. People will go to the things that were controversial or upset people and read those as well, because they're also something that people are interested in as well. And I think as human beings, we're interested in both the good and the bad. And I guess that's how we find out what, what works in the world is it's probably partly due to examining both sides of what's going on. So grammatical errors could tweak people into a certain way where they can't let it go. That's right. Yeah. I would suggest that would be part of what's going on there. It's like, it's an unfinished thing. 
the grammar people would be like, that word is not right. I need to and shout to everyone that he, the president misspelled a word. Yeah. He's so dumb. Okay. Yeah. Seems like he's pretty intelligent and knows what he's doing a lot of the time. Okay. Well, th that's very interesting. And Scott Adams, I would say, is probably the only person out there who's saying, no, everything he is doing is deliberate. And there's a whole methodology behind this. He, I guess, grew up with a, a major player in um, influence community, etc. So it's nice to get some sort of verification because I'm of the mindset that whether you're a fan of the guy or not of the guy, you can only get lucky so many times. Yeah, I do believe in the beginning with what he was doing, he accidentally got successful. I'm not sure he actually believed it was going to work, but he started to realize, okay, I've got some traction here. And then I think he became more deliberate as time went on. I think in the beginning, he's just, hmm. I'm just being myself. I'm polarizing. I'm you know, getting a lot of attention, a lot of free publicity for all, all his business projects, perhaps, and a lot of free exposure. But then I think he became even more deliberate as, as he saw he, he was gaining traction there. That makes sense. Now, how could we um, kind of protect ourselves or guard ourselves to not, you know, jump on that catnip, so to speak? Oh, I very much just ask myself two things. I think, would I date Donald Trump in that, like, if I'm going to have a relationship, a friendship or a president or a prime minister here in Australia, do I trust that person? So if I wouldn't live with someone I don't trust, why would I elect them to run a country? I'd run it past two filters. Do I trust the person? And like, is this good for me? Rather than being jumping on what's the most popular or whatever's trending, I just ask, you know, can I trust this person? And are they acting in the interests of myself and others? And run it past that. And if there's not well, any, and if, the there's not, and if there's not any candidates out there that are fulfilling that, I'd suggest that, that that's a really big problem. What about the reverse? Uh, Scott Adams uh, has nicknamed it, and I think others call it too, Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of um, a lot of that going around. Yeah. How do we guard against that? To where I mean, he is the president, and do we want to spend all of our time just railing and filling up every line of Trump, 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 because we hate him? Isn't that equally as toxic? Yeah, absolutely. I'd suggest to anyone who's got like a really big dislike or resentment towards like a president or even in bringing it down to their own relationships and their own family, how much time are they spending on creating the new? Are they just jumping on the complaining bandwagon or are they suggesting a better way? With the president and in their own family, are they the one, are they mending the fences or are they just keep complain, complain, complain? Who's building the new? I'd suggest, why, why aren't those people building the new? And how do you recommend somebody um, addresses that within themselves? Addresses that in themselves? I think just being responsible for what we can be responsible for. Like, and to look at it on a, on a world scale, we could feel really bad that there's, there is a lot of bad things going on in the world. There's, a lot of people that are suffering. There's a lot of people that, that do have poverty. Um, and to like take action on whatever it is that they're most inspired by. Like if your thing is end world poverty, go for that. If your thing is keeping people warm or 
helping people to see again or educating people, go forth in whatever that one is. Like we can't take on every charitable cause in the world and make that our own, but there has to be one that we're most inspired by. Like for me, it's helping people to get control of their own minds and not be overwhelmed by thoughts and emotions. And I feel like I'm contributing in that. And there's got to be something that each of us feels like we can contribute in and make that difference. So yeah, make a difference in whatever they are most inspired by. Well, cool. And how how do you um, treat people? Are they all local or do you treat people over the internet? And if so, how? Um, Yes, I do local um, here in my office in Brisbane, Australia, and also worldwide through phone call and Skype as well. How does that work? Um, Essentially, there's, yeah, so a bit bit like we've done today, we've had a conversation and this conversation could also lead to like a a hypnosis session. Um, So all you'd have to do is make sure you had a, a comfortable space um, have your headphones, either sit or lie comfortably, and hypnosis can happen um, just about as effectively through the phone as it can in person to person. Okay, so it's it's a very viable then. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I've done, I think, about 15, 20 sessions um, over the phone in, in the last few years. Okay, so not a t- I'm, I'm guessing then the most are local then. Oh, certainly most person. are local. Um, yeah, some hypnotherapists do run their whole business some um, through phone and Skype. And I have a mobile office. I like to have a base, and then if people do want to work with that, that that's definitely available. Well, cool. Now, um, to wrap things up, how how could people get a hold of you so they could do this? Yeah, so they can get in touch with me via my website, um, which is www inspirehypnotherapy.com and there's an opportunity to have a, a free 30-minute chat on there um, regarding you know, virtually any issue. is a good introduction to how it all works. Um, or they can join my Facebook group, which is Self Mastery and Transformation. And I share a lot of my teachings on hypnotherapy and, and the mind in, in that group as well. Fantastic. And I know that you're already in the Unstructure group and you'll occasionally comment there. So I look forward to hearing more from you. Absolutely. I look forward to chatting with you further as well. Um, Thanks a lot for having me on today. We've really enjoyed our chat. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.